Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 40 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on pretty much whatever the hell we want to talk about. I'm your host, Chad Knight, and with me as always is Lou Schwalbach. Good evening. This week we'll be asking, what's in a name? And talking about songs that have a name as a part of the song title. This time, it'll be about girls' names. Hubba hubba. And before even getting started, yes, we're aware that there are about a billion and a half of them out there that fall into this category, but we're still fucking doing it. If you need proof of the sheer volume of girl named songs, check out the hilarious back and forth of Stewie and Brian on Family Guy when Stewie is writing the song for Susie Swanson. But I digress. Tonight we'll be touching on a few that come to mind and chatting a bit about them. You know, why we like them, or not, who it may or may not be about, etc. You know, the usual things you've come to expect. Then next week, we'll delve into the songs with guys' names in the titles because, you know, equality. Thinking about this here, I think that nearly every band out there has done at least one song with a name in the title, which, in itself, makes this a rather dubious task. Something I've noticed, just because the song title is for a woman's name doesn't necessarily mean it'll be a love song, happy, or even remotely flattering. Some of these, wow, even. So sit back and relax while we get this show started. How you doing this week, Lou? Pretty good. How about yourself? I can't complain. I'm still upright and taking sustenance. There we go. Why don't we get into our newly seg our new segment, I should say. And that Here! is the flavor of the week. Literally. Okay, yeah, what are we doing this week? This think, week you you supplied. Yeah, we're gonna do a and this I mean you beer snobs out there might get kinda like whatever because Hey, it's we flavored. drank fucking hams last week. Well, that's right. <laughs> We're going to go with a little Lineys here, but it's a pomegranate shandy. Ooh. Now, that's new. I've had their... I've the, had their the summer. I've had their summer shandy. I've had their grapefruit shandy. Mm-hmm. I have never tried this one, though. No, this is a new one. I just saw it at the store the other day. I'm like, fuck it. Why not? So, All right. Let's so, let's, give let's it crack her open and see what we got here. Ooh, smells de- good. Definitely pomegranate. Ooh. It's very berry. I... It's almost, oh, the back end. Oh, the back there end. There is a nice hit. pomegranate, yeah, but I have to say, it's still Lining Kugels. It is. I don't mind Lineys. I'm not it's a huge not, fan. Not but my favorite. It reminds me of Berry Vice a little bit. A little bit, but it's 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 definitely pomegranate. It sits on the back of your, Ooh, on the back of your palate. It's still remaining, too. Yeah that, yeah. that one sticks with you a while. This one, I think, as you belch it, you're going to taste pomegranate. Yeah, probably. In fact, this I think this flavor is going to last longer than Fruit Stripe Gum. Which is longer than anything. (laughs) All right, so why don't we get into uh, trivia? All right, I'm feeling good. I went, I went 50% last week, which still puts me on the positive, right? Four and three. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. So now we've only got one question this week. Okay, so we'll ask the question. We'll answer at the end. You got it. All right. Which rock band made a surprise guest appearance at the ACM Academy of Country Music Awards in 2012 to present an award? Now, you get bonus points if you know who the award was to or what the award was. So, actually, this is going to give you three chances. 
The second two you can throw out. You might actually be able to get this one. All right. Now, that being said, just want me to repeat the question one more time. Sure, go ahead. All right. Which rock band made a surprise guest appearance at the Amer- the Academy of Country Music Awards in 2012 to present an award? Let you uh, ponder on that one for a little while, and let's get moving. All right. Why don't you kick this one off? All right. We're going to go ahead and start off with a little Lola by the Kinks. All right. Good song. I uh, My dog's name is Lola. So I, I know this. I wasn't going to bring it up, but since you did. And it's You know, some of these songs that we picked were because they had personal meaning to us. Mm-hmm. This is one of them for me because that's my dog. She's a little Scottish terrier. We say that Lola means is Scottish for lippy little bitch. Which, that works. Which she is. Now, Lola was written by main songwriter for the Kinks, Ray Davies, for the 1970 album Lola vs. Power Man and The Money Go Round Part 1. Christ, what a name. That is that is extreme. They would have to put a really small font to put it on their CDs. Right? They'd probably go all the way around the 45 like twice to get the whole thing in there. <laughs> Anyways, imagine going to the record store or Camelot Music or something and having to remember that without writing it down. Anyways, the song tells a story in a first-person perspective of an encounter between a guy and an individual only known as Lola. The narrator throughout the song shows plenty of confusion as to why things aren't really what they seem. A prime example is the verse, I'm not dumb, but I can't understand why she walked like a woman and talked like a man. But yeah, yeah, it's most, of, most who hear the song pretty much figured that out that she's packing. And it's not a firearm we're talking about. No, but it is a gun. Mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the guy is just so in love and enamored and horribly naive that he just goes along with it. And you know what? Good for him. You fall in love with a person, right? Well, Lola did it for him. Let's take a look and listen, I should say, to a little bit of Lola. Well, I'm not the world's most physical guy, but Now, the background of the song differs depending on whose story you go with. Davies states that it was inspired by a band manager getting drunk, dancing, and spending night with a transgender woman in Paris. Drummer Mick Avery's explanation was that Lola was partially inspired by his own visitation to a trans bar in West London. With a band name like The Kinks, it drew a rather unique crowd, and some queens and transsexual people who gravitated towards them helped inspire the song. A third but later debunked myth by Davies himself was that it was a date that happened between him and Candy Darling, a transgender actress known as Warhol Superstar, and was a muse of Lou Reed's group, The Velvet Underground. Ray stated, Ray stated it to be false because there was just dinner and he knew her gender identity from the get-go. You know what? Regardless of who or what it's about, it's a great rock song. It's definitely well-deserving of being included on any greatest rock songs of all time list. Plus, and as I mentioned before, it's the name of my Scotty. Yeah, so are you trying to out your dog? Is she transgender? No, she's just a lippy little bitch. Oh, okay. Of course, the first thing when I hear this intro music is I think of Weird Al's Yoda. Yoda, of course. But that aside, the song about a man falling in love with a drag queen is a lot of fun. If you actually listen to the lyrics, the kinks sing, it's kind of disturbing. What might be even more disturbing is the fact that once the singer realizes that Lola's a man, he sticks it out. Oh, yeah, good for him, man. 
I, I suppose love comes in all flavors. You know, and like I said, you fall in love with the person, not with their package. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some of us, and, and I'm not I'm not disparaging that lifestyle in any way, but some of us, the package includes the love. Fair enough, yeah. You know, it's just it's the way each of us are wired a little bit differently. Well, yeah, and everybody finds every everybody finds something different attractive. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, great song. I love that song. It's it's a lot of fun. It took me a long time. I just love the song, and then at one point I'm listening to it. I'm really listening to the words, and I'm like, oh, light bulb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, no, great song. Absolutely, and. You know, it's you really can't say enough about it. The Kinks are they were part of I think this was the second British invasion. I want to say or were they the original. No, I think they were the second. You know, and they they're well deserving of all the accolades because Ray Davies and the group they just did great things. Yeah, for, absolutely. For the arts. So yeah. Let's go ahead and take what you got first. Come on, Eileen is a song by English group Dexys Midnight Runners, released in the UK on 25 June 1982 as a single from their album Two Rye. Okay, it reached number one <laughs> in the US. And was their second number one hit in the UK following 1980's Geno. The song was written by Kevin Rowland, Jim Patterson, and Billy Adams. It was produced by Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley. Come on Eileen won Best British Single at the 1983 Brit Awards, and in 2015, the song was voted by the British public as this nation's sixth favorite, 1980's number one. We're number six. We're number six. It was ranked number 18 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of the 80s. Come on, Eileen, let's listen. Is that an order from a dirty girl? Come on, Eileen. You had to go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were thinking it. I just had to say it. So Dexy's Midnight Runners are an English pop band with soul influences who achieved their major success in the early to mid-1980s. They are best known in the UK for their song, Come on, Eileen, and Gino, both of the late 1970s and early 1980s. Dexy's went through, a numerous, or through numerous personnel change over the course of three albums and 13 singles with only singer-songwriter co-founder Kevin Rowland remaining in the band through all of the transitions, and only Rowland and Big Jim Patterson, trombone, appearing on all of the albums. By 1985, the band consisted only of Rowland and longstanding members Helen O'Hara and Billy Adams. The band broke up in 1987, with Rowland becoming a solo artist. After two failed restart attempts, Dexys was reformed by Rowland in 2003 with new members, as well as a few returning members from the band's original lineup, known as Dexys Merc One. Dexys released their fourth album in 2012, and a fifth followed in 2016. Didn't he say he hated that song, though? Come on, Eileen. Yeah, I thought I thought I remember reading something, or maybe it was on a VH1 thing, that said Kevin Rowland just hated that song. Possibly. I mean, I could understand why, too. It's, an, it's a fun song. But if that's all you're ever known for. Right, and if that's what you listen... I mean, I couldn't sit there and listen to that song over and over. Oh, yeah, that would get annoying. Yeah, it would get annoying real fast. So could you imagine playing it night after night after night? <laughs> yeah, get it like a 15-city tour playing the same goddamn thing over and over again. Right, and every night, and then people want to hear it more than once, because you know they do. 
Oh, yeah, because that's what everybody knows him for. It's the signature song. Right. But, you know, it's one of these songs where it's it's a fun little song. It's a fun little 80s pop song. It's almost infectious. It is. What, what do you, I mean, other than that, what are, what are your thoughts? For me, it's a drinking song, actually. I just remember going to Lopno's. Okay. Um, back in the late 90s, I think, with a bunch of different drinking people from East Bay. Okay. And we would just crank up the 80s off of, I think it was the CD the set was like totally 80s or awesome 80s or something. It was on okay. the jukebox. And this is one of those songs that I just remember getting loaded beyond belief at the bar listening to it. Just I, getting blind drunk and listening to it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's, I liked it even before that, but this is just – it just has memories for me. That's why I enjoy it. It brings more. out the feels. Uh, those are some of the feels I don't want to have because I remember being hung over to hell those days. <laughs> so that's a feel I don't want to have, but I like the memories. All right, man. What do you got next? All right. We're going to go with a little bit of Amy by Pure Prairie League. Now, Amy was written by Craig Fuller of the soft rock slash country rock band Pure Prairie League. I hate saying that name because it's hard to say even remotely fast. Yes, I would agree. They released the song in October of 1972 as part of their album Bustin' Out and wasn't put out as a single. Fuller had some issues with the U.S. draft board. He was a conscientious objector, pussy, and wanted to get status wait, as wait, such. Wait, I'm sorry, a conscientious objector? What was the word you said after that? Pussy. That's what I thought you said. Okay, go on. <laughs> I'm not saying I disagree with you. <laughs> All right. He wanted to get his status as such, but before that could happen, he was put in jail for six months and forced to leave the band. RCA dropped them due to a dismal future. Sad face. Oh. Now, Amy was released as a single in February of 1973, and college radio airplay made RCA consider and re-sign the band. Let's hear a little bit of Amy. See, I thought that I might keep you for my Go college radio. College radio, number one. Right, right. Now, Fuller eventually got a full pardon from Gerald Ford. Not even close to the most dubious thing that that guy did when it came to pardons, but that's a different podcast. Maybe that's one of your historical ones. There you go. Amy was a soft love song written by Craig Fuller as an ode to an on-again, off-again relationship. The style worked for the band because if you listen to anything else that Pure Prairie League did, it's it's really their M.O. Let's see here. Um, the song peaked at number 27 on the Billboard Hot 100 and 19 on the Canada pop music list, which is not too shabby for a soft rock band who got success from college radio. Now, surprisingly enough, they're still technically active. I did not know right away. And the little trivia that I got on this one is that country star Vince Gill was actually part of the band and recorded with them. He made a good decision to leave the band in 1982 to go solo. I would say so, yeah. And so, Amy, just a good soft song if you know any Amy's that are in your life. You can absolutely put this song on that list because it's it's a cutesy little soft love song. Yep. What do you think about it? I think you might argue with me, but after hearing you talk there, I doubt you will. But this sounds a lot like a country song. Yeah, it, it really know, does. It's a great song about heartache and loss. I mean, Pure Prairie League does a great job making this song sound and feel like the singer is really longing for this Amy. The first thing that comes to mind is they don't know how to spell the name Amy. Jesus Christ, that's really what you're going to complain about? A-M-I-E. Really? 
And I, I know there are multiple ways to spell things. There's that way. There's A-M-I. And this is the wrong way. And there's A-M-I-I. What about A-M-Y? How about just the, the traditional way? Yes. You love the classics. Well, I always do, but... We're old. <laughs> of course we like the classics. You know, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about it. It's a great little pop song, you know. <laughs> pop finger quotes. Pop country-ish right, right. song thing. But, you know, I, I enjoy it. I'm not going to turn it off. All right, there you go. Let's go with your next one. All right, up next, I have Sweet Caroline. It's a song written and performed by American recording artist Neil Diamond and officially released on September 16, 1969. As a single with the title Sweet Caroline, Good Times Never Seem So Good. It was arranged by Charles Khalil and recorded at American Sound Studio in Memphis, Tennessee. The song reached number four on the Billboard Hot 100 chart on August 23, 1969, and eventually went platinum for a sales of 1 million singles. Sweet Caroline was also the first of 58 entries on the U.S. Easy Listening Chart, peaking at number 3. The Billboard ranking supports those sources, which indicate that Sweet Caroline actually charted on June 29, 1969. In the autumn of 1969, Diamond performed Sweet Caroline on several television shows. It later reached number 8 on the U.K. Singles Chart in 1971. In a 2007 interview, Diamond stated the inspiration for his song was John F. Kennedy's daughter, Caroline, who was 11 years old at the time it was released. Diamond sang the song to her at her 50th birthday celebration in 2007. On December 21, 2011, in an interview on CBS's The Early Show, Diamond said that a magazine cover photo of Caroline Kennedy as a young child on a horse with her parents in the background created an image in his mind, and the rest of the song came together about five years after seeing the picture. However, in 2014, Diamond said the song was about his then-wife, Marsha, but he needed a three-syllable name to fit the melody. The song has proven to be enduringly popular, and as of November 2014, has sold over 2 million digital downloads in the United States. Let's listen to this one. Touching me, touching you. Leslie Diamond is an American singer-songwriter, musician, and actor, one of the world's best-selling artists of all times. He has sold over 135 million records worldwide since the start of his career in the 1960s. With 38 songs in the top 10, he is the second most successful artist in the history of the Billboard Adult Contemporary Top 10 charts. His songs have been covered internationally by performers from a variety of musical genres. Diamond was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1984 and into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2011. Additionally, he received the Sammy Kahn Lifetime Achievement Award in 2000 and in 2011 was an honoree at Kennedy Center. Sweet Caroline is played frequently at sporting events and has become an anthem for the Boston Red Sox. I did not know that. Uh, probably because we didn't care about the Red Sox? Oh, that could be it. A funny little side note about this song is my daughter, my oldest daughter, her middle name is Caroline. Okay. So she hates this song. I can only imagine. Because when she was little, whenever we'd come on at a wedding or anything like that, <laughs> we would just torture her. Oh, yeah. So she absolutely hates this song. Well, she did. She's 
as she's gotten older, you know, she's realized that it's actually a really good song. As long as you leave it alone, she's fine with it. <laughs> if you start bugging her about it, she gets kind of she gets kind of touchy. I, I can't imagine why. A little testy, does she? Yeah, I I really enjoy this song. It's it's one of the few Neil Diamond songs that I actually enjoy. So, what do you got? What do what do you think? You know, and honestly, I I really never listened to the song. Um, in college, I really didn't know about the audience participation. Obviously, now I do because it's all over the goddamn place. And, I mean, Christ, they have t- car commercials with that song on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, which, that also dates people, too. Like, when you're watching, like, the Burger King commercial, they had the 80s, like, always something that reminded remind me. I'm like, really, Burger King? Really? I like when Burger King used the, uh, uh, I, I melt with you. I melt with you. Yep, I remember that one. Now, it doesn't mean I like the song any better, though. I mean, Diamond is kind of neutered pop music. Yeah. yeah. It's very neutered. I don't hate it. I don't love it. I actually like his Come to America song better. Yeah, it's a decent one. But, I mean, this one, it's it's classic Neil Diamond. If you if you say that name, this is probably going to be the first song that anybody ever thinks of. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. All right, so what do you got next? Next up, we're going to go with a little Barbara Ann by the Beach Boys. Oh, we're getting back into surf music. I love it. There you go. Now, the original song was written and recorded as Barbara-Ann by the doo-wop group Fred Fassert and the Regents in 1961. The Regents' biggest claim to fame was when, in 1965, the Beach Boys covered and released the song. The cover peaked at number two in 1966 and was just about to overtake the Beatles' We Can Work It Out as number one when, out of nowhere, Petula Clark's song My Love took over, making Barbara-Ann stop at number two. Petula Clark, you bitch. Now, it's said that the Beach Boys decided to record their cover of the song a week after Barbara Ann Feldon made her debut as Agent 99 on the Mel Brooks-created spy show Get Smart. Dean Torrance of Jan and Dean hooked up with the Beach Boys and sang lead vocals with Brian Wilson, but wasn't credited on the album. Dick move, Brian. But brother Carl Wilson was nice enough to say thanks, Dean, at the song conclusion. Let's take a little bit of a listen to Ba Ba Ba, Ba Ba Brian. Don't you dare shake your head at me. Well, I, you just <laughs> did that. I, I, had, have... I had to. Okay, if you say so. No, I never really picked up on that before, so now I'm going to have to listen to see if we hear about the Thanks Dean thing. Anyhow, the most common version of this song sounds like it was recorded at a party, actually, um, as opposed to like the sterile sounds of a studio or anything else. They did record a finger quotes true version of this song without the party sound effects. That's not the one that anybody remembers. Um, in fact, if you listen to this one here or any other, this version, you hear them like play the ashtray and they're just they, they're missing lines. They're not like in tune with each other, but it's still a fun song. Now, here's something else I didn't know about. The Beach Boys re-recorded it as Here Come the Cubs with new lyrics about the Chicago Cubs in 1987, where it replaced Go Cubs Go theme for a year. Why didn't I know that? Well, it could be because it was 1987 and I was more interested in Guns N' Roses, Michael Jackson, and Def Leppard than the Beach Boys. More likely the reason I didn't know is because I didn't and still don't give a shit about the Chicago Cubs. That's what I was going to say, because it was the fucking Cubs. Exactly. Now, Barbara Ann is just like most other, most other Beach Boy stuff. 
absolutely classic. I mean, I don't care who it's about. It's a fun song. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, classic surf song about a girl. Great stuff from the Beach Boys, and I really do like it. But I don't have much else to say about it. No, not really. So let's kick into our next one. All right, so up next, I have got Roxanne. It's a song by English rock band The Police. Written by lead singer and bassist Sting, the song was released in April 1978 as a single from their debut album, Outlandios du Amour. And I don't speak French, so fuck you. It was written from the point of a man who falls in love with a prostitute. On re-release in 1979, the song peaked at number 12 on the UK Singles Chart. song ranked number 388 on the Rolling Stones' 500 Greatest Songs of All Time and was voted number 85 by VH1 on its list of the 100 Greatest Rock Songs. In 2008, Roxanne was included, inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Turn on a red light and listen. Just make sure you don't turn left on a red light because you'll get pulled over for that. That's true. lead singer Sting wrote the song inspired by the prostitutes he saw near the band's seedy hotel in Paris, France, where the police were lodged in October 1977 to perform at the Nashville Club. The Nashville Club in Paris. They've got a Paris Disney song. That's true. The song's title comes from the name of the character in the play, Cyrano de Bergerac, an an old poster of which was hanging in the hotel foyer. Sting had originally conceived the song as Bossa Nova. Although he credits police drummer Stuart Copeland for suggesting its final rhythmic form as a tango. During recording, Sting accidentally sat down on a piano keyboard in the studio, resulting in the atonal piano chord and laughter preserved at the beginning of the track. The police were initially diffident about the song, but Miles Copeland III was immediately enthusiastic after hearing it. He became their manager and got them their first record deal with AM Records. We went into Surrey Sound Studios and it was working pretty well. We recorded a few tracks, one of which I wrote more or less as a throwaway. That was Roxanne. I didn't think much more about it until we played the album to Miles Copeland, who is, of course, Stuart's brother and a bit of an entrepreneur, though he'd never been particularly interested in the police. In fact, he kept away from it, to say the least. He did come along to the sessions while we were putting the first album together, but more or less just to offer brotherly advice to Stuart. He heard the album and quite liked it. When we got to Roxanne, we were a bit embarrassed because the song was a bit of an anachronism. Because compared with our usual material, it was slow, quiet, and melodic. Far from saying he thought it was a piece of shit, he said it was amazing. I thought, he likes the song. That is fantastic. And that was from Sting in a visual documentary from 1978. Roxanne. It's just a fun little song about a hooker that, uh, you know... <laughs> We don't mince words, apparently, around here. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. She was a prostitute. She was a fucking hooker. Okay? <laughs> you know, and it's just, a, it's just a song about the red light district, really, and about mm-hmm. this particular prostitute, which I'm guessing Sting slept with. I'm going to say that anyway. It's probably not true. He never said that, but, you know, whatever. It's Sting. Maybe somebody in the band did. 
Yeah. He's been with his wife for a really long time, though, I thought. Yeah, I think he has. You're probably right. So, what do you think of the song? It, okay, I'm sorry, but the first thing that comes to mind when I hear, when I think of this song is Sting getting to his, like, really bellowing the name Roxanne. And Roxanne! It, exactly. It just gets hilarious, actually. Now... This time, this time, Sting is trying to talk her out of being a lady of the night because he loves her, and that's complete. Yeah, <laughs> that's total devotion. And man, if she's been plugged more times than a wall outlet, Hooker, get her tested, man, before committing to it. Hooker, <laughs> you're digging the hooker tonight, aren't you? <laughs> Why well, I kind of always dig hookers. Not that I've ever been with a hooker. We're going to leave it at that and move on to the next one. How's that sound? Good. What do you got, man? <laughs> All right. Next, we're going to go with little Donny Iris. Donny, it's Donny Iris. <laughs> the song is Ah, Leah, and it's actually Ah, exclamation point, Leah, exclamation point. And that was his explanation, expo, expo, point. Dude, fuck yourself. <laughs> Donny Iris, formerly of the Jaggers with a Z, and Mark Avsek, formerly of Wild Cherry, as in play that funky white... Play that funky music, white boy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pen the tune that appears on Iris's 1980 album, Back to the Streets. The song reached peak of number 29 on the Billboard Hot 100, 22 on the Cashbox Top 100. Fuck is the Cashbox 100? I don't know. Sometimes, you know, doing the research on these things, it's like, I've never heard of this fucking group or this, this, this list. Right. And then 18 on the Billboard Top Tracks. Many, this, many consider this to be Donny Iris' signature song and was way more popular in Canada than it was in the U.S., achieving top 10 status up in the Great White North. Let's take a little listen to Ah, Leah. Now, the song was initially going to be an anti-war song and kind of started off as a chant. According, okay. <laughs> maybe. According to Iris, somehow Mark came up with the Aaliyah as a chant, and I said, you know what, Mark? That's a chick's name, which is how it got its name. Apparently, what made it even more appropriate was the fact that one of the guys in the Jaggers dated a girl by the name of Leah, and Iris always dug the name. Thus, an anti-war tune became a love song. Talk about a 180, huh? You go yeah. from a war song to a love song? Whatever, you know. Now, a little bit of trivia here. A couple of Iris's later albums played off the song title, one of which being the 2009 live album called Ah, Leah, and, or Ah, Live, I should say, and the 2010 Christmas album called Ah, Lula, or Ah, Leluia. Ah. Uh, Very clever. No, guess, not, yeah. not really, actually. But anyways, no, I honestly did not hear of, Donny Iris, in fact, I remember looking him up, and he looked a lot like Buddy Holly. Yeah. And this song actually played on the classic rock station when I was down in Iowa, and I'm just like, you know what, I kind of like this. And he's actually put quite a few different songs out. He's got a good Greatest Hits catalog. Not sure I could handle all of his back stuff, but it's good good classic rock. The guy is a fucking god in Pittsburgh. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's where he's from. Uh-huh. And they have adopted him as the native son. Really? Oh, Yeah. Donny Iris, man. Oh, I was wondering where that was going there. I got a great, it's a great little love song. It's upbeat, it's fun, it's very much in the vein of the 80s and 90s pop rock. Yep. You know, though they have issues and they know they were never, ever, ever going to make it, those crazy kids are going to give it a try. You know, and that's really what it's about. They're like, this is never going to fucking work, 
But we're going to have fun until it implodes. That's, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> much know? how it works. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's a fun little song. I enjoy it. But, yeah, so, you know, it's it's a great song. I like Donny Iris. I like a lot of his stuff. Some of it gets kind of... Repetitive? Yeah, that's a good word for it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's got a kind of a hootie quality to it where it's got... Uh, it's it all the same sounds fucking the same, song, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's good to listen to every now and then. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so what do you got next? Well, it's been a while. It's been a while, but Eleanor Rigby is a song by the Beatles. So, you know, it's been a while since I've done a Beatles song. You're right, which is why I'm not rolling my eyes as much. <laughs> so released on the 1966 album Revolver and as a 45 RPM single... It was written primarily by Paul McCartney and credited to Lennon McCartney, which all Beatles music is. The song continued the transformation of the Beatles from a mainly rock and roll and pop-orientated act to a more experimental studio-based band. With a double-string quartet arranged by George Martin and striking lyrics about loneliness, Eleanor Rigby broke sharply with popular music conventions, both musically and lyrically. Richie Unterberger of AllMusic cites the band's singing about the neglected concerns and fates of the elderly on a song as just one example of why the Beatles' appeal reached so far beyond the traditional rock audience. So put your face in a jar by the door and listen. up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door who is it for so you gave me that strange look that's actually a line from the song putting your face in a jar yep she put her face in the jar by the door oh that's right that's right so paul mccartney came up with the melody of eleanor rigby as he experimented with his piano However, the original name of the protagonist that he chose was not Eleanor Rigby, but Miss Daisy Hawkins. I remember reading that. The singer composed, uh, the singer composer Donovan reported that he heard McCartney play it to him before it was finished, with completely different lyrics. In 1966, McCartney recalled how he got the idea for his song. I was sitting at the piano when I thought of it. The first few bars just came to me. And I got this name in my head. Daisy Hawkins picks up the rice in the church. I don't know why. I couldn't think of much more, so I put it away for a day. Then the name Father McCartney came to me and all the lonely people. But I thought that people would think it was supposed to be my about my dad sitting knitting his socks. Dad's a happy lad. So I went through the telephone book and I got the name Mackenzie. Others believe that Father Mackenzie refers to Father Tommy Mackenzie, who was the compeer at Norwich Memorial Hall. McCartney said he came up with the name Eleanor from actress Eleanor Braun, who had starred with the Beatles in the film Help. Rigby came from the name of a store in Bristol, Rigby and Evans LTD Wine and Spirit Shippers, which he noticed while seeing his girlfriend at the time, Jane Asher, act in The Happiest Days of Your Life. I'm a big mark for this song, and I don't know why. I think it's the music more than the actual words. It's just very melodic, very... It's not happy. It's it's very dark. It's very drawing, but it kind of pulls you into it, the, the, the melody. The words themselves, okay, I get it. They're, they're talking about issues with, you know, that old people have. People die and nobody comes to their funeral because, well, they might be the last one living, you know? How the old lady goes to church every day, and even though there's nobody else there but her and Father Mackenzie, you know, she does it every day because that's what old people do. 
yeah. at least according to the song. So, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, the song's totally depressing. Yeah, it it's is. It's about uh, lonely people and a dreary life. I don't hate the song because I think it has a really good hook and the violin work to it, which I think is great. Um, I do remember being in college and in my English class, actually, our professor, we were doing a poetry class. Okay. Uh, part of our English. And actually, he used this for the stanzas and everything because he was a huge fan. That and things feel the gold. Okay. Feel the gold. So, I mean, this is where I really didn't, again, I'm not a huge Beatles fan like you are, um, so I really didn't hear this one because it's not one of their primary No, ones. no, this is, I wouldn't call it a deep cut, but it's not out This front. is kind of like a B-side. Yeah. And so, I didn't hear it before, listened to it, kind of liked it, there's something about it kind of stuck out, like I said, probably the violin work on it, and I don't hate the song, but it's not a happy song by any means. No, no, not at all. So, all right. So, take us in. What do you got next? We're gonna go with a little bit of sticks. I'm uh, sorry. Nice. <laughs> We're gonna go with Lorelei. Now, Dennis DeYoung and James Young write the sticks tune or wrote the sticks tune for the 1975 album Equinox, where the song came up out as a single in 1976. Lorelei peaked in Canada at number six and on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 at 27. That's a pretty big disparity, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Six in Canada and 27 in the U.S.? Well, anyways. Now, Styx formed in Chicago, so the song got a lot of radio play in Illinois, more than anywhere else, which bumped it up to number eight in 1976 based on listener surveys. Let's take a quick listen about Lorelei. the song's muse, I really couldn't find anything about the song or who the hell it's actually even about. It's not as if it was a super popular name. Um, there was a Lorelei in German mythology as a water fairy slash siren that lived by the Rhine River, but I can't really see why DeYoung really would care about a siren that would want to come live with him. I think the song was written just a little bit too early for that chick from the Gilmore Girls. Yeah, I would say so. Um, I guess we just have to credit the unique songwriting to the 70s and a classic rock band. I, I enjoyed Sticks. You know, I remember on 70s show, which I know you watched recently, how Eric stood in line for Sticks tickets and everybody gave him a hard time, but then it turned out they were fans too. Mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed Sticks. I like their harder stuff better than their love stuff, but I enjoy Sticks. I'm not a huge fan of Sticks. I know. I know. Crucify me now. No, because they're not for everybody. This, however, is a fun rock song. I mean, I like it. It's, it's a rocker's way of asking a girl to live with them. He wants Lorelai and him to live together forever. It's got a nice synth-based music of uh, the late 70s, early 80s. Just kind of eh for me. I mean, Fair enough. Just, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about it. It's just not, and, and of all the Sticks music, Lorelai, for their bigger hits, the songs that are well-known, mm -hmm. is probably their worst one. Okay. It's, in, in, in my opinion. And that's fine. You know, and with nothing else to say, I think we should move on to one of yours. All right. So up next, we're actually not going to go to a single artist, but Damn It, Janet is a song musical number in the original 1973 British musical stage production, The Rocky Horror Show, as well as its 1975 film counterpart, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Book, music, and lyrics by Richard O'Brien. Musical arrangements by Richard Hartley. 
So I don't know. Do you know the movie? Yeah, I do indeed. I don't do you... know. I don't know all of the things that go along with it. Okay, so Richard O'Brien played Riff Raff. Mm-hmm. Okay, just to give you a, he- a heads up on that. So the number provides well-known audience participation moments and has entered the pop culture lexicon through the often quoted phrase, "Damn it, Janet." The first scene of both the stage production and film opened to a wedding scene with the two main characters, Brad Majors and Janet Weiss, in attendance. In a motion picture, representative Gothic setting backs up the young couple in their chorus with the American Gothic characters themselves. Brad and Janet are portrayed as sexually uptight. The song is performed in this deliberate awkwardness, setting up the characters as naive and innocent. The scene is reminiscent to the opening scene to... Night of the Living Dead. Several comparisons to the later film with Rocky Horror have been made by authors such as Robert E. Pearson and Philip Simpsons in their book, Critical Dictionary of Film and Television Theory, as well as Jay Haberman and Jonathan Rosenbaum in the book, Midnight Movies. Costumes for the two characters in the scene are nearly identical to those of the two main characters from the film, What's Up, Doc? The song is an awkward musical marriage proposal by Brad to Janet. After both have attended the wedding of two high school friends, just before setting off to visit their high school science teacher, the music for the song exaggerates the rock and roll tendency to repeat simple chord progression. Let's time warp to this. Let's time warp to this. The river was deep, but I swam it. Janet. The future is ours, so let's plan it. Janet. So please, don't tell me to can it. Janet. I've one thing to say, and that's damn it. Janet, I love you. But I ran it. Janet. There's a fire in my heart, and you fan it. Janet. If there's one fool for you, then I am it. Janet. I've one thing to say, and that's damn it, Janet. I love you. This is another one where every once in a while I don't really write up anything. I got introduced to Rocky Horror Picture Show by our buddy Brian. Okay, oh, was, I can I can see that. <laughs> it was one of these, you know, movies in the. Uh, uh, what do you call it? The uh, at, 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 it's one of those you gotta watch this type thing. Yeah, you gotta watch it. But we actually watched it at the university in the union. Oh no shit! It was one of the union night movies. Nice. Oh god. <laughs> Back then, I can only imagine. You know, it was that we would watch. We watched movies like Deliverance because Brian had like blank cart on what he wanted to show, which got some really weird movies. So he, he got me into Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, I think that was one of those movies too. But this was one of those where we watched it, and I kind of walked, the first time I watched it, I walked out of there going, what the fuck just happened? Did I just watch, right? You know? But over the years, I've seen it again, and I've actually seen it live. Mm -hmm. And um, I've done it live in full drag. But I was much skinnier then. (laughs) But... It was it was a lot of fun. It's just a fun movie. It's a it's a fun show. I think it kind of makes people question of morality and reality and, and their own sexuality and their own sexuality. So I don't know. What do you think of the song? You know, this is what you mentioned the word awkward about six times, and that's the main word I had in mind. Is it is the most awkward love song I think I've ever heard, <laughs> and it's supposed to be. And it is. I mean, just Janet. Uh, that's one of the things I love about the song too. It's like he's singing and he's got such a great voice, Janet. <laughs> well, and that's other that's other characters doing. That oh, voice. I know, I know, and it's just great. 
Now, the song itself does not do it justice without seeing the film or the play. It I really doesn't. I mean, I think I might have the soundtrack, and I've listened to it. I'm just like, this is entertaining, but it's not a tenth as funny as it is when watching it. Oh, I agree. I agree. So I really don't have a whole hell of a lot extra say to it. I mean, except for the fact that it had Tim the Man Curry in that movie. Oh, yeah. In... In full, like, lingerie. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Actually, didn't he, like, nail half the characters in that movie? Pro- <sighs> like, because I think he's, like, he was with Brad, he was with Janet. Yeah. Plus Magenta and Columbia. Okay. And and they kind of put it out there that maybe Riff Raff. And, and, and for Rocky. Sure Rocky. Yeah. So Jeez. right there, that's, that's six people, just in what we just... Just in the span of, what, two hours? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Slut. so... What? <laughs> Hooker. So anyway, <laughs> why don't what, what do you got next, man? Next, we're gonna go with a little whole lot of Rosie by ACDC. Now you're not gonna get away with some, without some ACDC on this one. Hooker. Well, yeah, okay. And actually, technically, you're kind of right on this one. I know I am. Now, Bon Scott and the brothers Young, Angus and Malcolm, penned this tune for the 1977 album Let There Be Rock. Just like most of ACDC's material, there's very little veiling about what the song is about. There are Sex. There are two versions of the story, and both revolve around Bon Scott getting freaky with a rather, rather large Tasmanian groupie who turned out to be one of the best talents he'd ever experienced. Let's go ahead and listen to some of that talent. Now, in one version of the story, she was called Big Bertha and came backstage hollering, Who Wants It? (laughs) Bon Scott was too frightened to refuse, so he tagged her, and afterwards afterwards she called her friend and said, That's 37th this month. Holy shit! While pulling out a black book of conquests, the Scott told the story and changed the name to From Bertha to Rosie. Now, the other version of the story says that he was in a club after a show. Rosie and her friend hollered at him, and he thought, well, why the fuck not? He went over to where they were kept buying him drinks. Rosie supposedly said, this month I slept with 28 famous people, to which Scott replied, oh, oh yeah? Fast forward to the next morning, he woke up pinned to a wall, and when he opened his eyes, Scott sees Rosie leaning over to her friend and whispers, number 29. Per Angus, there are very few people who will go out and write a song about a big fat lady, but Bond said it was worthy. Whole Lot of Rosie may not be the most well-known song about a bigger girl. I think that distinction would go to Queen's Fat Bottom Girls. Fair enough. Which came out a year later. But that being said, it's just a fun-as-hell song. And I just have to say, if fat girls weren't awesome, Chubby Chasing would not be a thing. I, I don't know. I mean, this I love this song. This is one of my favorite ACDC songs. Not because of, you know, not entirely because of the subject matter, but it has a decent hook to it, and it's just an entertaining song. Yeah, it, it is. It's more classic ACDC sex music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this time about a thick girl, yeah, I use the word thick girl, who likes the sex a lot. It has the classic ACDC melt your face off with guitars and vocals. The sex, I like that. <laughs> it's a great song, and, you know, personally, I too kind of like thick girls. So, you know, Skin and Bones just doesn't do it for me. No, no, it's, I, I'm, I'm happy to see that modern models are coming more human-shaped as yes. opposed to body, yes. Barbie-shaped, 
which I'm, I'm ha very happy with. I know that um, Project Runway sometimes is on at home by us, and sometimes with that, some of the models that they have on there are bigger models, and I'm just I'm thrilled by that personally. But anyways, moving on. What do you got? All right. So up next, I have probably the dirtiest song on our list. Oh, I know what you're talking about, and I'm going to agree. <laughs> Darling Nikki is a song produced, arranged, and composed and performed by American musician Prince and originally released on his Grammy Award-winning 1984 album, Purple Rain. Though the song was not released as a single, can't imagine why, <laughs> it gained wide notoriety for its sexual lyrics and, in particular, a reference to masturbation. Partly because of the lyrical content of Darling Nikki, Tipper Gore founded the Parents Music Resource Center, which eventually led to the use of parental advisory stickers and imprints on album covers. Compared with the slick production of the other songs on the album, Darling Nikki was deliberately engineered to have a raw, live feel. The song tells the story of a sex fiend named Nikki who seduces the singer. In the film Purple Rain, the song is directed toward Apollonia Cotero's character, when she decides to work with Prince's character's rival, played by Morris Day. Morris Day in the nay! Or Morris Day in the... Time. Time. Never say an unkind word about the time. Yeah, exactly. Near the end of the song, the music stops into the sound of rain and wind. There is singing, but played in reverse. The vocals on reversed are Prince singing, Hello, how are you? Fine, fine, because I know that the Lord is coming soon. Coming, coming soon. Yeah. During the Purple Rain Tour, performances of Darling Nick at the end was played forward. This can be heard in the live video, Prince and the Revolution Live. Let's listen in. She took me to her castle and I just couldn't believe my eyes. She had so many devices and was a musical innovator who was known for his eclectic work, flamboyant stage presence, extravagant dress and makeup, and wide vocal range. His music integrates a wide variety of styles including funk, rock, R&B, new wave, soul, psychedelia, and pop. He has sold over 100 million records worldwide, making him one of the best-selling musical artists of all time. He won seven Grammy Awards, an American Music Award, a Golden Globe Award, and an Academy Award for the film Purple Rain. That piece of shit won an Oscar? I love Purple Rain. That is the most self-indulgent piece of crap I've Absolutely. ever watched. Anyways, moving on. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004, his first year of eligibility. So the first thing I'm going to say is, I do like Prince. I do not like this song. It is... Terrible. It is, it is beyond the realms of decency. I don't care so much about the decency part. It's just, I, I don't care. I don't care for the music. Yeah, it's well, you know, they said it's it was almost like to be, he was trying. He was like almost trying different things to see what worked, and this didn't. Yeah, I would agree. It, it did not work. It's not one of the songs I go to when I think of Prince. In fact, I saw it on the list, and at first I bypassed it, and I thought, you know, I'd like to do something from Prince, but "Darling Nikki" is probably not what I would go with. But then the more I thought about it, I'm like, you know, we don't always have to pick songs we like. 
Right, and I just and as we mentioned in the very per, the early part of this, I did Lola for my dog. Right. And was this because of your little darling Nikki? Actually, no. This was that was half the reason I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so well, I mean, what do you think of the song? And this is where you may crucify me, but Prince is okay. I don't think he's a god. I don't think he's a god either. I don't. I'm not a huge fan of his, but I'm a greatest hits fan. Yeah, I like his older stuff. I can, like I said, I put him as myself as a greatest hits fan. Where I, I wouldn't get his whole catalog, but I'll listen to his greatest hits and I'll be okay with that. Well, nobody will get his whole catalog because you'd be broke. Well, exactly. But that being said, I can absolutely appreciate what he did for the craft. He is well deserved to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I 100% agree with that. I would that. agree with that. This is another one of those songs that you want to make sure that you know who this song is or what the song says before you put it on a mixtape for this person. Yeah. Because if you have a significant other that is a Nicole or a Nikki or something. And, and you put not that, a sex fiend. Well, I don't even know about that, but we're not going to go there. That being said, you want to make sure that you are fully aware of what you're doing this or what you're letting them know about ahead of time. Because otherwise it'd be like, wait, what the fuck are you trying to tell me? Not a hooker. Hookers get paid. <laughs> well, you know, I suppose. All right, so what do you got next, man? Let's just right. get away from this it, one. It got a little awkward there, so next... Well, that's because you kept putting your hand on my knee. My arms aren't that goddamn long, dude. <laughs> I ain't a fucking gorilla. Well, dude. <laughs> Anyhow, no, next I've actually got a song called Nicole. Okay. By Point Blank. Um, the song was written by Mark Alexander Hamilton and Tim Wheeler and sung by Bubba Keith of Point Blank. Point Blank is a Texan rock band formed in the early 70s that ran and released six albums before breaking up in 1984. The surviving core members hooked up for a benefit concert in 2005, which became their live album, Reloaded. They started touring again and released the album Fight On, their first in 27 years, and are still touring and recording today their ninth album, aptly titled Volume 9, which was funded by Kickstarter. God, again, you can do anything by Kickstarter I, That's My note even says, what the fuck? isn't funded by Kickstarter anymore. Now, there really isn't much out there about the song other than lyrics on the song. So let's just take a quick listen to Nicole. You drive a man's No one knows who the song's really about. It would appear that the songwriters picked a name out of the baby book and rang with it. Now, I wanted to do this song because it's a shared name of significant others. Yeah, both of ours. Um, Chad and I are both in the Nicole Club, but I wanted to put a caveat out there. This is one of those songs, as the prior one, that the lyrics aren't exactly flattering. The chorus is fine. Oh, Nicole, my sweet Nicole. That sounds great, right? Yeah. yeah perfect. Yeah. Then you have, you're started looking like a burnout. And the way you're acting, girl, just ain't right. Not exactly something you'd want to give to your lady friend, unless they have a really damn good sense of humor. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, that might work. Or make sure that you only use the chorus so that they don't hear something that wasn't exactly intended. I enjoyed the song. In fact, as we had mentioned before we even started recording, I said that I, I tried to find a song for a mix CD, not a mix tape, but whatever. And I came across this one, and then I finally listened, and I'm like, oh, wait a second. Time out. I'm going to preface this and let her know that this song is on there, but it's not everything I'm trying to tell her. 
Gotcha, gotcha. So I liked it. I enjoyed it. It's a good classic 80s rock song. Um, it's kind of a dirty rock song. Not like dirty, like like sexy dirty, but just right. kind of like dirty rock. Yeah, yeah. So what are your so, thoughts? I thought it felt like the late 70s. So finding out it's in the 80s to hit makes sense. Early 80s, late 70s. That makes sense. It's a song where a guy is worried about this girl, Nicole, thinking she's becoming a, a burnout. And all he wants is to be with her, even though he gets... Upset by her wicked little smile, and she can drive a man stark raving mad. You know the the lyrics they don't they don't mesh. The the chorus and the lyrics don't mesh. No, it's almost like it was written by two different people. Almost, uh, you know. But overall, I kind of like this song. Mm-hmm. I like the feel of this song. So you know, I don't have a whole lot more to say about it. It's it, it doesn't uh, encapsulate my my wife, my Nicole, in any way. <laughs> Well, except for maybe the chorus. The chorus, yeah, yeah. So we'll leave it at that and move on. All right, so up next I have Hey There, Delilah, by a song by the American rock band Plain White Tees. It was released in May 2006 as the third single from their third studio album, All That We Needed. It received radio play over the following year and eventually reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in, in July 2007. It reached number one because they never fucking stopped playing it. Yeah, exactly. The song was featured in television shows such as Journeyman, I Love the New Millennium, Orange is the New Black, and Family Guy. The song is from the Plain White Tees third album, All That We Needed. The song was recorded and produced by Ariel Reichscheid at Doug Messenger's Hard Drive Analog and Digital in North Hollywood, California. The intervening fourth album, Every Second Counts, has Hey There Deliah added it as a bonus track with a string section written and performed by Eric Reimschneider. Yay, it's a bonus. Augmenting the original recording. The song was written by frontman Tom Higginson after meeting Delilah D. Curzenzio, a nationally ranked American steeplechase and cross-country runner. Let's hear it. Hey there, Delilah, I've got so much left to say If every simple song I wrote to you Take your breath away, I'd write it all Even more in love with me, you'd fall We'd have it all Oh, it's what you do to me Oh, it's what you do to me Plain White Tees is an American rock band from Lombard, Illinois formed in 1997 by high school friends Tom Higginson, Dave Terrero, and Ken Fletcher. They were joined a short time later by Steve Mast. The group had a mostly underground following in Chicago basements, clubs, and bars in the early years. The band is best known in the USA for the number one hit song, Hey There, Delilah, which achieved platinum status in 2007 and earned two Grammy nominations, as well as 1234 and Rhythm of Love, which was certified platinum in 2009 and 2011. I actually like this song, but... I didn't really get inundated with it because I don't listen to Top 40. Right. So when I listen to this song, it's because I want to listen to this song. It's a nice little, it's a nice, right. It's a nice little song about, you know, a guy who is separated from this girl. And it's just, you know, they want to be together, but unfortunately life and everything else keeps them apart. I don't know. It's a, it's a nice little love song. I think what are are your thoughts on it? You know, and, I'm just going to preface this with I am so fucking tired of this song. They played the living shit out of this thing on the radio. Even even if you flip past the stations, 
you caught this damn song. And every romantic comedy that was released had this because it was some cutesy coming-of-age song. Blah. Did not care for it. I was unfortunate enough to have to edit this song. I did not care for it doing then. I'm glad I don't have to listen to it anymore. Not a greatest hit. All right. Fair enough. Damn fibs. So we're going into bonus territory. We are. So we're going to go ahead and I'm going to do my last one here. And this is going to be not so much dedicated, but, you know, we're doing this one because we got a listener by this name. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And that is Dawn. Go away. And no, I'm not telling you to go away, but that's just a song title by the Four Seasons. Now, Bob Gaudio of the Four Seasons and songwriter Sandy Linzer pens the Four Seasons song. It was written early January of 64 during a time when the Four Seasons were going through a royalty dispute with VJ Records. As Lowe's was going through legal system, the Four Seasons recorded Dawn and a bunch of other songs and held them back from VJ, who claimed breach of contract. Ironically, the dispute wasn't settled until a year after they left VJ. Anyhow, later in January, they presented the song to Atlantic Records, who rejected it. So they signed with Phillips, a subsidiary of Mercury Records, who released Dawn towards the end of 64, where it climbed to number three on the Hot 100 in four weeks. Not too shabby. The only reason it didn't go higher was the top spaces were blocked out by I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You, put (laughs) out by those mop-top dorks known as the Beatles. Mop-top dorks? (laughs) Yeah. During a six-week run in the top ten, the only songs that ranked above it were Beatles songs. Let's take a quick listen to Dawn. This is one of those songs that's really not a great one for your mixtape, also for a prospective lady friend. In most songs out there, the guy really digs a chick. Even if it's not the right time, like if she's not in the mood or already with somebody, he'll try to pursue her and persuade her to get with him instead of being a loner with the other guy. This time it's different. This time he tells the girl that she's pretty as the midsummer's born, but to stay with the guy that she's with because he's better and you'll have a better life with him instead of me. I mean, wow. Really, I mean, seriously, it's like a very a little self-depreciating is one thing, but damn, y'all, this goes to a whole new level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know plenty of Four Seasons songs, and I didn't know about this one. It's not a bad song, but not sure I really want to remember it. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a classic song. I put here, it's a classic song of unrequited love. Dawn, you're better off to go with the rich guy and not the poor bastard who actually loves you. It's classic 60s fair. It's a peppy song, even though it's not really a happy song. No, not at all. So, you know, I actually have heard the song a lot of times before. Uh, like I said, I grew up in a in a classic. I mean, this is really classic rock. So this is like 50 stuff. My parents would listen to that on occasion when they got When they were listening to country. Exactly. So, you know, I enjoy the song, but you're right. It's not a happy song. It's not something you put on a mixtape to some girl. No. Um, you know. But just because of the name, we threw a shout-out to Dawn. Yeah, there you go. Hi, Dawn. And what do you got for your last one? Let's round this one out. All right, so for my bonus, uh, we're actually going to talk about the song Jolene. Uh, It tells the tale of a woman confronting Jolene, a stunningly beautiful woman who she believes is trying to steal away her lover and begging her, please don't take my man. Throughout the song, the woman implores Jolene, please don't take him just because you can. Now, according to Dolly Parton, the song was inspired by a red-headed bank clerk who flirted with her husband, Carl Dean, 
at his local bank branch around the time they were newly married. In an interview, she also revealed that Jolene's name and appearance are based on that of a young fan who came on stage for her autograph. The song became Parton's second solo number one single on the country charts after being released as a single in late 1973. It reached the top position in February 1974. It was also a moderate pop hit for her and a minor adult contemporary chart entry. The song has sold 733,000 digital copies in the U.S. since it became available for digital download. The song was released as a single later in the U.K. and became Parton's first top ten hit in that country reaching number seven in the UK singles chart in 1976. The song also re-entered the chart when Parton performed at the Glastonbury Festival in 2014. The song has sold 255,300 digital copies in the UK as of January 2017. So let's listen to Miley Cyrus's version of this. Then the little, the little connection there is Miley is actually Dolly Parton's goddaughter. So let's take a listen. Miley Ray Cyrus is an American singer, songwriter, and actress. After playing minor roles in the television series Doc and the film Big Fish in her childhood, she became a teen idol starring as the character Miley Stewart in the Disney Channel television series Hannah Montana in 2006. Her father, Billy Ray Cyrus, also starred in the show. She subsequently signed a recording contract with Hollywood Records, and her debut studio album, Meet Miley Cyrus, was certified triple platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. Having shipped over 3 million units, she released her second album, Breakout, and launched her film career as a voice actress in the animated film Bolt in 2008. All right, so maybe a little confusing. It was a Dolly Parton song. I enjoy the Dolly Parton song. However, the Miley Cyrus song, I just think it has more soul to it than the Dolly Parton version. She's got the chops to pull it off. This was, I think, part of the, what, the backyard sessions? Yeah, I think. it was the backyard sessions. And it was impressive. I really liked it. I mean, I enjoyed the Dolly Parton one, and I, I actually am almost going to say that I kind of like the Miley one better. I do, and that's why I chose for our listeners to get that version of it. And it's, I mean, it's cool that she's the goddaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, she sings the Homewrecker anthem perfectly. It's a good cover. Despite the topic, it's a great song. I know that you sometimes don't care for songs because of the topics. Right. Which this could be one of those, but it's a good song. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we're going to finish up with our trivia. What rock band made a surprise guest appearance to the Academy of Country Music Awards in 2012 to present an award? Okay, for that part of it, I'm going to say Bon Jovi. You would be incorrect. Ah. Now... You're gonna. You have two more chances. Yes. What award and who was it presented to? Now keep in mind this is the Academy of Country Music. Right. I'm gonna say Country Music uh, Song of the Year. No. Now keep in mind this is an episode about lady songs or ladies' names. So okay. who do you think the artist would be? I, I I have no idea, but I'm going to say Miley Cyrus. I gave you as much as I could of a tip here. The band was Lady Antebellum. Okay. It was Vocal Group of the Year that was presented by Kiss. Kiss? Really? Kiss was a surprise guest in 2012, and I'm just like, the fuck, really? Yeah. Well, Gene Simmons will put his name on anything. He will. He really will. 
So that puts you at exactly 500 now. You're in four and four. Yeah. All right. Okay, listen up, everybody. Turn up your volumes. Announcement. If you guys want to reach out to us, let us know what you think of this episode or any of our other episodes, you can do that. There's a few simple ways. First of all, send us an email at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com. Drop us a line there. We'll get back to you. I, I absolutely promise you we will get back to you. The other way you can do it is if you uh, if you like Facebook, you can find us on Facebook at POI Network or at Musically Challenge Podcast. Drop us a line there, and we'll get back to you there as well. And then, of course, we have our Twitter account. And if you're one of those Twitter-pated people, you can always go ahead and drop us a line at at MCPodcast17. That would be MC for Musically Challenged Podcast number 17. If you want to send us some feedback, good or bad, if you want to send us a playlist, 14 songs, 14 artists, by all means, definitely hit us up on one of those. We'll be more than happy to talk to you. And if you look for us on Twitter, if you find the devil horns of the skull hand, mm-hmm. that's us. Absolutely. All right. So with that, I want to say thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.